0: We're in our sixth episode, week six, 2021. You know, on Monday, the Fiber Broadband Association along with NTCA submitted a low earth orbit satellite technical assessment and model from our work with Cartesian. The three key takeaways from our analysis are that over 56% of Starlink's RDOF locations will experience congestion and performance degradation during peak periods. You know, secondly, if StarDOF Starlink uses as little as 20% of its capacity for commercial non-ardoff subscribers. Nearly 80% of their ardoff locations will not meet the performance requirements. And third, you know, start off, Starlink is a, a dynamically reconfigurable network, so the FCC will not be able to use the same performance monitoring and measurement methods as they use for CAF terrestrial-based networks. So our goal with developing this model is to enable the FCC to be better equipped to carefully vet Non fiber applications during the long form process to ensure that rural America gets the broadband performance they're promised. So, we're going to be holding a webinar on Tuesday, January 16th at 11 a.m. Eastern to review the LEO satellite analysis with you in greater detail. So, speaking of bandwidth performance, this morning we're going to be speaking with FarmerTel Cooperative and Calix as the time for 10 gig pond is here and now. Are you ready? But before I formally introduce our guests, I'd like to introduce Tris Ehlers from our team who will walk us through some housekeeping items.
1: Thank you so much, Gary, and uh, good morning to everyone who's joined us. I'm gonna quickly go over just a few logistical items. Please keep in mind that all participants are in listen mode only. To ask a question, all you need to do is type it into the question box located within your control panel, which should be on the right side of your screen. Gary will host a Q&A session toward the end of our session. This presentation is being recorded and will be available to members on FBA's website within 24 hours. You can find the recording in the events tab under the fiber for breakfast dropdown option. And at the, at the conclusion of the presentation, you'll be prompted to complete a brief feedback survey. We do appreciate your input as always. And now I'll pass it back to Gary to introduce our panelists and get us started. Thanks
0: Trish. And again, good morning and welcome everybody. I'm Gary Bolton, the president and CEO of the Fiber Broadband Association. And today we're gonna to be discussing the time for 10 Gig pawn is here and now. Are you ready? Joining us today is Kevin Coe, the Director of Calix Product and Solution Marketing, and Charles Austin, the Manager of Network Engineering and Operations at Farmers Tel Cooperative. Kevin has been with Calix for the past four years and has worked at Nokia and Merola, Motorola and AT&T over his 15 year career. Kevin will be providing some insights into the latest pawn technology. Charles Austin has extensive experience in network operations at Farmers Tell and his prior roles as a NOC manager. Charles has a degree in theology from Notre Dame and a master's in theology from Harvard in addition to an MBA from South Carolina. So we know if all else fails, Charles is well-trained in praying that his network performs. So welcome Charles and Kevin. It's exciting to see 10 gig residential broadband networks especially in areas like Rainesville, Alabama. So we look forward to hearing about how you're changing the lives of those in your communities. So for our audience, please type your questions as you go so that we'll have our Q&A at the conclusion of the presentation.
1: So over to you, uh, Kevin and Charles. Great, thanks, Gary. So good morning, everyone. Uh, Next slide, Trish. All right, I'd like to uh, first thank Gary and the Fiber Broadband Association for having us this morning. Um, As Gary mentioned, joining this morning is Charles Austin. Charles comes from one of our valued customers, Farmers Tell, and he'll be sharing some compelling perspectives on why Farmers is future-proofing its network with XGS Pond and what evolutionary steps they took to get there. So how about we get started? So while 2020 has forced us all to change the way we live, work, and play this past year, has definitely shown us that the need for more high-speed residential broadband continues to ramp given the increase in many of us working from home or our kids learning remotely. Companies like Netflix, of course, have seen growth, but one area that really has skyrocketed is in the video communication space, specifically video conferencing. You know, a company like Zoom has seen astronomical jumps in usage given the need for symmetrical services to support high quality video conferencing capabilities, which really points to the importance of XGS Pond going forward in order to to, to sustain such services. So from a fiber perspective, one really needs to pick a technology, and there are a few options out there. There are two different standard bodies, the ITU and IEEE. Depending on where you're located or what industry you're in, if you're in the MSO cable operator industry or in Asia, you'll probably be looking at the IEEE standards. If you're looking at GPON or XGS-PON or NGPON2, you'll most likely be looking at the ITU standards. Once you select the standard, you have the specific technologies to pick from. Now GPON is the most widely deployed technology. There's also point-to-point or active ethernet. Both deliver one gig upstream and one gig downstream. Up and coming 10 gig PON technologies would be things like XGS PON, where instead of only one gig symmetric, you now have 10 gig upstream downstream symmetrical speeds. And finally, NGPON2, which provides multi-wavelength technology that that really delivers four by 10 gig speeds. So now let's turn to XGS PON and XGPON. Both utilize the same pair of fixed wavelengths, 1577 nanometers downstream, 1270 upstream. But we'll, what we predominantly want to focus in on today is XGS PON technology. It's what most carriers are deploying today, especially in North America. I often characterize XGS PON as GPON on steroids. Uh, it enables the same service as GPON, just at higher bandwidths and is deployed just as GPON. It's important to note that GPON does not overlap with XGPON or XGSPON or NGPON2, so you can interoperate and put all those in a network at the same time. You'll have the same standard optical budget from that perspective, and they can coexist with R video, which is an important item to note when you overlay your GPON with XGSPON. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. So we also want to touch upon NGPON2. We put it in a 10 gig PON grouping because it has four wavelengths. You could characterize it as four gig PON. Um, Each of those wavelengths provides you 10 gig of bandwidth. And for each wavelength, you could enable the 64 way or, or wave split ratio that you desire. Also those four wavelengths can coexist with GPON or XGSPON. However, one thing to note is that if you utilize more than one of NGPON2 wavelengths, you'll need a wavelength, what's called a wavelength MUX to split those wavelengths to support the different technologies. I did wanna note that XGS PON is priced lower than NG PON2 today, but if you're looking out across, I should say from an individual components perspective, but at some point in time down the road, NG PON2 would ultimately be the right solution, especially if you're planning for a 5G backhaul, as an example, in the long term, given its redundancy and low latency capabilities. So as we look at this slide, you know, we'll see how to establish a future-proof network design and how these three technologies can coexist with one another. If we look at the GPON before it goes out to the ONU, the optical network unit, it goes through something called a coexistence element. So GPON, XGSPON, and even NGPON2 go through this element so they can be deployed. And, th- and basically it merges all of the wavelengths from all those technologies onto a single fiber. So it can run out to the splitter and then go to the required ONUs at the subscriber's premise. So from a network planning perspective, the ability to add a coexistence element up front within your ODN is key within a deployment strategy. for example, if you have a GPON network and you know you're going to go to 10 gig PON down the road, by adding a coexistence element up front, you have the ability to add XGS PON as an overlay whenever you're ready to deploy XGS-based services to your subscribers. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Charles to describe how Farmer's Tell has gone about future-proofing its network through the introduction of the AXOS software platform and coexistence elements. Charles?
2: Thank you, Kevin. Okay, let's get started on to the next slide. Farmer's Tell Communications, we're located in the northeast corner of Alabama, about a thousand square mile to ILEC territory. We're on a plateau of the Appalachian Mountains. We also do CLEC services in a handful of adjacent cities. Some of those are on the Plateau and some are down in the Valley. Uh, We are currently 96% fiber to the premise and we'll complete our fiber build out, passing 100% of locations served with fiber by the end of 2021. We are doing voice broadband and security and business services uh, to all these locations. We did, for a while provide IPTV services through the Microsoft, well not Microsoft anymore, through the Media Room uh, middleware platform. We exited that business on May 1st, 2020. Um, We did provide notification prior to the pandemic um, and uh, despite the pandemic we held to that date, exited TV in May. Um, It took us eight months to gain broadband lines um, equal to the number of lost TV subscriptions so, we don't charge as much for broadband as we did for TV, but if you talk to any of your finance people, they would take that trade off uh, in a heartbeat um, because the profit margins are so much better on broadband than they were on TV with the uh, expense of content and the expense of middleware subscriptions, et cetera, et cetera. So, in January 2018, when I moved here back home from South Carolina, um, the network was all active Ethernet. For the fiber customers in september of that year we capped the active ethernet and started installing the latest iteration of GPON from calix the e72 axos platform we did that for a couple of reasons Um, one the the b6 has been a, a fantastic platform for us for a number of years but it had reached the end of its development lifespan and there was not going to be any further development on that platform so we, we knew we needed to change at some point. Bigger considerations were um, to address some fiber-constrained routes. We're very rural territory um, but we had an instant instance um, right around September, October where a developer decided to go to a, a vacant field that we had never anticipated being more than one or two homes if any ever and built a subdivision, 40 or 50 homes. So rather than, than do an active ethernet fiber build to home run that back to the closest location, uh, we put in a, a splitter, used one fiber out of the existing um, fibers, and lit that, that neighborhood up with uh, G-PON instead of having an expensive fiber build. Uh, and, and that situation has, has come up in a, in a couple of instances. And it's really helped us to to cut back on the amount of fiber spend capital expenditure we've had in our fiber plant as as the network grows sometimes in unpredictable ways um, one of the other reasons for making that move was to again leverage the the new development in the operational systems to manage that platform through Calix's axos and smx platforms um, and those helped us with our operational efficiencies. They're much easier to use, easier to train people how to use those than the old um, platforms were. And another big operational expense that we were able to cut back on with the move to GPON is that we were able to take some of those smaller active ethernet sites and replace the electronics in those sites with some splitters. That way we don't need to worry about heating and cooling the building um we don't need generators we don't need battery power plants all those things that it takes to make a, a site operational when you've got active electronics in it so we've recognized some some significant savings on on that side and we're continuing to retire some of the smaller active ethernet sites as we move forward just through that transition to GPON. so in august of 2020 we we have been thinking about moving to some 10 gig pond for a while and we finally pulled the uh, trigger on that in august the first deployment was with a school system that that had multiple locations and then a headquarters location each of those schools needed a one gig connection the headquarters needed a five gig connection uh, to tie everything together and uh, xgs pond seemed like a a perfect fit for it for a couple of reasons Uh, One, you're using a single fiber to feed each location instead of a pair of fibers Um, and that single fiber is part of an already existing pond network that we've we've inserted into our, our fiber network at this point. So there was no construction or splicing of fibers to make this school network work. In the past, we would have gone out and identified a pair of fibers. To each location home run those back to a central location whether it be the the headquarters or one of our facilities and then done that uh, times five to get all the locations connected together um, so a lot more efficient from the from the fiber standpoint and on an operational standpoint one of those networks that we typically refer to as ethernet transport ets services uh, requires a specialized level of knowledge to troubleshoot if there's ever anything that goes wrong you're talking cisco or juniper typically engineers who've been through multiple training classes also have responsibilities for the core network um, to get involved if there's ever an issue with one of these systems that you that we would have had tied together with ethernet switches and, and fiber pairs now with a single fiber running to an ONT Um, That's all managed by the same group that manages our carrier network. Uh, The same people that troubleshoot ONTs on a regular basis or ONT connections on a regular basis are now able to troubleshoot, at least on the initial level, any problems that come up with the school system, whether a location's down, whether they are having bandwidth issues, et cetera, et cetera. So that uh, flattened our organization quite a bit, reduced some of the specialized knowledge, that was necessary and allows us to keep growing this type of service without adding more people um, with some very specialized expensive type of knowledge and the third thing that that this did is it allowed us to start introducing the coexistence elements that kevin talked about before um, and and that's important to us because as we look forward we see that that 5g is going to be a, a key part of what's placing demands on our network. As we look into that crystal ball, whether it's a a lump of coal or or an actual goodness um, crystal ball, 5G is going to require 10 gig connections to radio sites that are spaced every quarter of a mile or so to handle the limitations of that high bandwidth, low penetration frequency that those sites use. So to us, it's important to have a network that's able to handle those multiple 10 Gig connections without going back and and re-engineering the whole thing in a year or two as the carriers start to ask us to connect all these sites, and especially in our denser areas, some of our SELEC markets. Those coexistence elements that, that we're buying actually contain the mucks that Kevin was talking about, so it can handle inputs from a couple of NG-PON2 as well as XGS-PON and G-PON um, into the network and it was important to do that now because that presents a serious record-keeping challenge for you in terms of managing the, the port assignments and the fiber assignments of the network. If you've got um, six different lasers that could provide service to that one customer on that one splitter out there. Um, you've got to figure out how to do that in your record system. And it's in your record keeping system is probably not set up for that today. So ours certainly wasn't. So that was a challenge that we had to work through, but it, it seemed better to work through it now than at some point in the future when we've got somebody knocking on our door wanting 50 or 60 10 gig sites connected um, in a very dense area. So um, we've been talking about 5G in our, our management meetings, our senior staff uh, each week for quite some time. And uh, early on in in 2019, um, the CEO made a quip about that, I was always talking about 5G. And I responded back saying, well, Cato the Elder, a Roman Senator from back uh, 2000 years ago, used to end every speech, whether it was about building a new aqueduct or the morals of the young or whatever it was, used to end every speech he made in the Senate with a three-word Latin phrase, warning Rome about the greatest challenge facing it. And so the CEO immediately challenged me to come up with a three-word Latin phrase to um, challenge us internally about what our greatest challenge is. So here you have it. If my high school Latin is correct, quintus contraenda est translates to 5G must be built and so i i talk about that every week at our internal management meeting okay and so um proof is in the pudding um this is one of our kpis that that we look at on a monthly basis about uh truck rolls and we measure truck rolls as a percentage of our broadband customer base so even though we exited tv back uh almost nine months ago ten months ago at this point um we have measured truck rolls as a percentage of our broadband customers as a way to have a baseline to see how well we're doing so whether that truck roll was for a fiber that's down somewhere or telephone that's not working right or broadband it all gets thrown into the same bucket it gives us a consistent measurement of how we're doing um, as as our uh, customer base grows and as our network improves and these improvements that we've made to the network have actually paid off they sound a little bit expensive up front but if you have uh, any feedback from your finance people again on truck rolls you'll understand that as you see these green bars and how they compare to prior years um, that's a significant savings and it more than pays for itself to uh to make some of these changes that we've been talking about and uh, i'll wrap it up with that back to you gary
0: thanks charles um yeah it always looks exciting to see you know being able to eliminate truck rolls and be able to, I, I think it's great that you were able to move off media room and be able to get over the top to really uh, start to automate your auto operations. A uh, ton of questions. So let me jump right in because we're low on time. So I have one that's a, a municipal uni, uh, utility provider that's providing fiber to the premise for private and public sector organizations. Today they're using active ethernet, but they're as they are developing plans to go residential, they're looking at trying to decide whether they should use XGS or active Ethernet. You know, what are the pros and cons of XGS versus active Ethernet? And I guess that goes to you, Kevin, or both,
1: I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think from a, you know, a customer perspective, I mean, Charles really described um, exactly that scenario because they, they, they were B6, which is active Ethernet. And they went to GPON and then eventually XGS PON. So you know, active E is point to point, right? So you have a dedicated fiber run uh, to your customer. Um, obviously, there are some benefits to that, but it is quite expensive, right? Uh, to maintain and so forth to roll out the fi- uh, roll out the A E to the home um, from a, you know X G S pond. You have the, the advantages of splitting that fiber, so you can go and use splitters. Uh, you know, we talked about coexistence, but splitters where you can have, you know, 32 splits or 64 splits. In North America, it's basically 32, where you're able to split that fiber optic into um, separate ONUs to to um, carry that uh, XGS-based services. So, I mean, in my eyes, depending on again your deployment, you know, how, who you're reaching out to and how far and and what type of customers, um, I, I would suggest that xgs pond is the right way to go. Um, now, depending on, you know, your infrastructure and and what, you know, where you are in terms of deployment curves and what type of technologies and builds you have, uh, my suggestion is, you know, exactly what Charles alluded to and described. They went from, you know, and we'll talk to Charles in a minute, but AE to GPON to PON is just a natural evolution where you gain more synergies and efficiencies going from uh, one-to-one to, uh, excuse me, a point-to-point to point-to-multipoint. So I don't know, Charles, Do you have anything to add to that?
2: I, I very briefly, I think the, the challenge that you'll face internally in making that case in your organization is the concept of oversubscription. Yeah. So it, it took a while for us to address the fact that that dedicated connection to the customer on active ethernet was still oversubscribed once you reached the, the OLT. And certainly oversubscribe once you talk about your connections to the wider internet. So it's just a matter of how far down um, you're willing to push into your network with oversubscription. And once you start talking about oversubscription and what rates you're comfortable with, then the conversation gets a lot easier.
0: Yeah, I always, the same thing. About, oh,
2: yeah ahead, I always think about. Sorry. Yeah, I always think
0: about it in density. So at very low density, so if you're in a very rural area, that ActiveE might be the right solution. But do you have a rule of thumb, Kevin? You guys use on how many homes per square mile or uh you know when do you, when's that right point where uh it's more cost effective to go to deep on or XGS? well
1: i you know i think there's a couple things that go into it i i would i would think that um depending on how because the way we do our systems it's based upon um the densities right so we have like an E32, which is low density, E72, which is medium density, could be deployed either in a cabinet-based solution or or a CO. It really depends on the actual number of subscribers that are being served, and I think it's a couple hundred thousand. You know, depending on again the you know, how close they are, what vicinity, the geographic distances and square miles between uh, the, the the points of, of whether it be central offices or cabinets. Um, I don't know if there's one general rule per se. Um, it really depends on how you've deployed uh, your network today and what technologies and how close your subscribers are so one of the other questions charles came in is uh you know how
0: many uh fiber to home customers do you have and what's your take rate
2: um we've got roughly 15000 broadband subscribers at this point a take rate is somewhere between 55 and 60 i think
0: yeah that's a consistent you know what we're seeing around that area, especially in rural areas, about 60%. Uh, do you have a, a breakdown of your truck rolls to determine, you know, what is your primary issue with your uh, infrastructure?
2: Yes, we, we take a look at that on a monthly basis. Uh, by far, most of our truck rolls have to do with uh, fiber repair. Uh, being on a plateau, there's a lot of rock, and we have very little buried plants. When dove season comes around, we've got a lot of shotgun damage to fibers and um, you know then the the normal weather events, et cetera, et cetera. So that's by far the majority. So one of the things that
0: uh, you point out is that you moved off IPTV, media room to over the top, and that's you know certainly improved your profit margins. Can you talk a little more about that? because i I think uh, a lot of emerging providers are struggling with, do they provide You know tv or not and kind of you i think you indicated that one of your challenges was the uh, you know buying channels and the changing prices and things like that
2: yeah you know there were a couple of things that that, uh, we were facing all at one time we we were due for a major upgrade to the middleware platform the media room platform that was going to be pretty big capital expense um and then the contact or the content um Contracts had several of those were coming up at the same time, and there were significant increases in prices. I mean, it's not a surprise to anybody that's in the IPTV business. And, you know, every time you turn around, um, the the rates are going up, um, not by percentages, but by factors of one, two, three, whatever. Um, so, you know, all those things combined, it it was it was it forced us to take a look: Do we really want to raise our base TV subscriptions? 10, $15 a month, which would have caused a, a, a riot in our customer base, or is it better for us just to, to, to explain to people that we can't afford to continue provide the service without, um, you know, just doing something drastic with the rates? And, and our customers were actually very understanding of that. We gave them um, six or seven months worth of notice. We did a couple of education classes here at our building before the pandemic broke out um just educating people on what their options were whether they wanted to go with a uh, satellite service or if they just wanted to do over the top with one of the providers such as hulu youtube we didn't really have any preference and um and when the time came to pull that plug then you know there was we didn't get any phone calls about it afterwards there, And there and maybe one or two in that six month period where people were just not understanding of what we were trying to do so it was, it was a lot smoother than we thought it would be.
0: What's your community's reaction to now having a 10 gig network?
2: Um, we haven't publicized it a lot because we're really um, doing it really for uh, ethernet transport services. So I keep telling the marketing folks, hey, we can offer 10 gig just like they do in the big cities to uh, individual customers. I think they're a little bit afraid to, to stick their finger in that just yet.
0: What, what um, services are you offering to residentials?
2: Uh, we're offering 100 meg or one gig to residential.
0: Awesome. And then Kevin, um, there's a number of questions about, uh, one, it's uh, that you seem to indicate that there's a progression from XGS to NG PON2. Is that what you think, the natural progression? And then, you know, are, what are you, are you seeing XGS more commonly deployed than 10 gig EPON in the US?
1: Yeah so epon is traditionally uh more in the what i'll call the asian region uh, asia uh you know uh, pacific asia pacific regions uh epon is mostly there 10 gig epon um not so much in north america um you know I, ngpon so in the if you look at everything holistically ngpon 2 is probably as i said the ultimate solution why because you know, you have basically four gig uh, wavelengths within NGPON2, um, you're able to have redundancy, so you could basically uh, move traffic seamlessly without the subscriber knowing that through, a, as I said, a wavelength mux. Um, you know, when you wanna move from one OLT to another, you basically just move that traffic seamlessly. Um, but then you also have things like um, low latency for things like, as you said, about 5G, um, you know capabilities coming up in the future. So it, it really depends. I, I think right now it's the time of, and when we say 10 gig PON, it's really around XGS PON. My, my belief and my, my uh, recommendation is that for most carriers going from GPON, uh, you go to XGS PON, you do have the ability to overlay that XGS PON onto GPON. So you, you know, you basically, um, you know, don't have a lot of work rework to do that in terms of deployment strategies. Um, so you know again, symmetrical services having that quality of service up and you know upstream and downstream at the same time when a lot of where our services uh, and applications are going um i think x g s pond is is right now, and if you 're thinking about in the future around the curve, it 's n g pond too but I think just the economics behind it, what the benefits are and how they would apply to today 's world, I would think x g s pond is is the right way to go okay and then the the last question is uh
0: you know, Charles, in your rural locations, uh, do you, are you using or plan to use the Calix Remote OLT?
2: I'm sorry, Calix what?
0: Remote OLT.
1: I'm not familiar with that. Remote OLT, is that the remote node? Yes, uh, I guess. Remote OLT? Okay, maybe E32. that's... E32,
0: it's an E32 is a remote node. All right, well, let's pass on that one. And sure. uh, hey, I just want to thank you guys. Um, you know, it's really exciting what you're doing. And we really appreciate the leadership, you know, bringing fiber broadband and 10 gig pond to rural Alabama and the communities you serve. So I hope you all join us for fiber for breakfast next Wednesday, where we'll be discussing how Chattanooga's fiber uh, project delivered $2.7 billion in economic impact with professor Bento Lobo from the University of Tennessee Chattanooga and Jim Ingram, the vice president of strategic research at EPB. So thanks everyone and look forward to seeing you guys next week.